Welcome to the Spirit Lake Wellness Podcast. Today, Dr. John Ewing and Kathy Kocher are joined by Dr. Drake Spath to discuss existential humanistic psychology. In part one of our four-part series, they discuss existential principles. Welcome, everybody. So my name is Drake Spath, and I call myself an existential humanistic psychologist or a humanistic existential psychologist, depending on the context. To give you a little bit of background, I'm a former Air Force psychologist, and I currently teach and hold the title of Existential Humanistic Specialization Coordinator at Saybrook University, training clinical psychologists and non-clinical psychologists from a research standpoint in the paradigm. And I'm a past president of the Society for Humanistic Psychology, which is Division 32 of the American Psychological Association. So clearly, this is a way of working in therapy, and it's also a discipline in research, in psychology in general, that I am very passionate about. You know, just as a side note, I have interests in Jung and depth psychology as well. And while those things are connected, there are also some contradictory aspects you might be interested to know that as an existential psychologist, I'm actually okay with the paradox and contradictions in some of those things. So just in case we wander into that area in the conversation, I wanted to let people know where I'm at, where I sit with, and all of those things. All that being said, I do work with clients from an integrative perspective as well, which means I'm not averse to using key concepts from psychodynamic approaches, those which were founded by Sigmund Freud and then softened to become much more relational and interpersonal and optimistic through the object relations and self-psychology perspectives. And I'm also not averse to integrating cognitive behavioral therapy techniques and in its most contemporary form, dialectical behavior therapy and acceptance and commitment therapy. They are rooted in cognitive behavioral traditions, but integrate and are open to existential humanistic therapy traditions as well and take some of the theoretical concepts. So all of it kind of goes into the mix, but my foundation firmly and strongly is existential humanistic. And I guess this is a good time to be talking about it. Just as sort of a side note, existential was dictionary.com's word of the year, 2019 to 2020. Just as things were getting started with the pandemic and all of that, I, in mainstream kinds of interactions and contexts, encounter a higher number of individuals who are familiar with the terms existential and humanistic, even non-psychologists. But some of my psychologist colleagues weren't as familiar once upon a time with existential humanistic therapy. They might know some surface level kinds of things and talk about it from that standpoint. But for the most part, there was not a lot of interest and we were considered sort of, um, I won't say a fringe element, but not necessarily like working in the thriving mainstream either. <laughs> but now there's a lot of interest in this approach because I think 
people are intuitively coming to understand what existential means, what humanistic means. And of course, I'm going to talk about all of that and where all of this comes from. But I think that there's just a lot of organic movement toward it because you're seeing it in television series and popular culture kinds of discussions. The term, this is an existential threat to dot, dot, dot. I, I hear it on the news all the time, you know. So there's this awareness that things are very serious, that there is sort of an amorphous threat, and people might identify that threat with any number of things. But I really feel that the paradigm does have a good way of accounting for what it is we're experiencing right now. What it is collectively, globally, we are all kind of going through here in the wake of the pandemic. You know, I think we're now sort of coming to terms with a lot of the things that we were facing, but we are forever changed. We are different and more of us are different on a collective scale than I think most of us have really known in our lifetimes prior to this. So this is my way of saying that I think existential humanistic psychology and psychotherapy was made for these times. Um, all right, so what do these two terms that I keep mentioning mean? Let's start with existential. I think when we talk about existential, the existential philosophers might come to mind. People like Heidegger, and Sartre um, and some of those folks and Camus and all of the um, folks who wrote from the perspective of what is this all about? You know, the classic question, what is the meaning of life? What does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be sentient, conscious and aware? You know, what is this all for? Is it leading to something? How is it that I got to this point, you know, that I'm aware that I'm aware, you know, and I seem to be somewhat separate from animals, plants in that regard, although there might be a degree of awareness, you know, in those arenas as well. But human beings seem to be, at least have some level of distinction in that regard, that we're able to reflect about ourselves, we're able to think about thinking, and we are able to articulate verbally our awareness that we are going to die, that we have a limited time on this planet to do what we are meant to do, however we might perceive that to be, to deliver our soul's gifts, if I can put it sort of romantically, to the world, to achieve greatness to pass along to the next generations the things that we are passionate about, the things that we are working on, the things that we are contributing. Maybe that is literally our children. For those of us who don't have children, it's the idea of leaving a legacy, some sense of a longing for immortality because we know that we have a ridiculously short amount of time to get anything that matters done. So we respond to this in any number of ways. We can be utterly terrified when we honestly confront that reality. 
or we spend most of our lives distracting ourselves from it, you know, and banal pleasures, as Rollo May, the um, existential psychologist, likes to say. But I'll tell you, something interesting happens when you have this heavy-duty philosophy and this contemplation of death and these things like, what does it mean to be free? What does it mean to have choice? And the idea that whatever we choose means that we're not choosing other things. And then this gives us anxiety. And I think the popular culture term for it is FOMO, the fear of missing out. You know, if we commit to something, it means we are missing out on any number of other things. And is this a good way to spend our time? So this longing we have to have a meaningful connection to our lives, to, to have meaning and purpose, to move forward with a sense of agency and control, and above all, to be creative. Rollo May, again, American existential psychologist, wrote a great book called The Courage to Create, which is all about this idea that in order to be creative, in order to uniquely leave a legacy for the next generation, in order to sort of achieve this sense that we have uniquely contributed something meaningful and important to the world and in our lives, we have to face the fact that we have a limited time and in that time we get to create something that only we get to do or are able, are able to do. And again, we either succumb to the terror or we rise to the challenge to be creative. So the psychology piece takes that philosophy moroseness and heaviness and it turns it into this optimistic energetic moving forward in many respects and and i can go on about the differences between the europeans and the americans and how they do that but john it looked like you had a question or comment so i'll let you jump yeah, in yeah so um i think in the past um uh we had this ideal of uh ideal forms and that yeah. um Basically, your job was to conform to that ideal which was prescribed to you uh, by society, by the church, and yeah. this was your duty to strive for perfection in um, matching that ideal uh, that was prescribed. And so rather than that idealized form being some sort of spiritual force, I think the existential process is that no you exist first yeah. and that that is your essence and that the ideal form is it's irrelevant to that existence which it takes um somebody who has a place in the universe and part of this grand plan and it dumps them out abandoned alone and yes. i think that's one of the starting places here. Yeah. Be accurate. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I mean, some people find comfort in the umbrella of a religious organization or institution or a set of values, all of the dogma and traditions of some of those things, and that comfort is something that is with them and is a sort of balm against the terrors of some of these things and the isolation and the facing of these things with courage it helps them sort of mediate 
the uh, feelings of terror and, and isolation and aloneness with all of it. And those who share that umbrella with them, there's a sense of connection and, and a sense of we're all in this together, which wards off this existential idea that we are fundamentally isolated. You know, no one is with us when we cross that threshold, even if they hold our hands right up to that moment we face that mystery and we take that step alone. You know, then of course, there's a group of folks called the transpersonal psychologists that'll say, well, that's a limited view of what it means to be human. And maybe to, to be human means that we're also participating in the greater mystery and the divine. And as Alan Watts once put it, we are all God simply playing hide and seek from God, from itself. <laughs> and that, you know, so no one is alone because we are all the same thing moving toward a greater awareness, you know, for some yet to be revealed purpose, presumably. <laughs> but that's the tension between the existential perspective and the transpersonal perspective. But religion can provide some comfort for some against that isolation and that aloneness. Whereas others feel that it's too stifling and restricting. And then of course, there's all this sense of rebellion. And that's not for me. I don't sense mystery there. I don't sense anything that's alive. So I'm going to go my own way and seek the mystery. And then of course, they might find something and they may attract a group of people who start to follow them because they get excited about what they're hearing. And maybe we even have a new religion that starts to spring up. <laughs> I'm being a little tongue in cheek about the sort of process with all of that. But that's oftentimes how I see this sort of um, relationship between religion and spirituality. Religion is that exoteric, external, organized structure with the dogma and the repetition. And you do it this way and you believe that way. And, you know, and you do this together and maybe men are allowed certain things and women are allowed other kinds of things and all of this stuff. Whereas spirituality is that esoteric attraction to the mystery itself. And that flame can exist without the house of religion, or it can be the heart of what gives a religion life and meaning for someone. So if spirituality is alive within that religion structure, that's something that's fulfilling for them. But if spirituality is not there, the house is empty and maybe meaningless. And there's some comfort in the rote repetition of things. But, you know, spirituality as a flame can burn by itself for others. And that's how they exercise their existential freedom. Yeah, Kathy. Wow, Drake, you have said so much. And my mind has just been racing. And I have just yeah. some general I don't know, observations or questions to throw into the mix. How do you see this tying into, if it even does, into the postmodern philosophy shift yeah. uh, where if you believe it to be true, it is, which we've yeah. seen kind of play out in our political systems lately, not necessarily yeah. in a positive way. And also, how, how does this... Um, how do you see this fitting into like Maslow's hierarchy of needs? Because I was yeah. thinking... Well, oh, there's the humanistic connection. So remind yes. me to come back to Maslow and all of that, because okay. that's the humanistic psychology side of the house. But, okay. but yeah, um, 
And you know, then I'm sorry, repeat the, the question that you had before that. Um, the post postmodern philosophy. Yeah, postmodern piece. Philosophy. Yeah. So I, to a certain extent, I think existential psychology embraces postmodernism. In fact, I think all of the branches of psychotherapy now embrace postmodernism to a degree because it's connected to this constructivism in psychology and social constructionism. So the idea is that we are embodied beings and that we have these sensory perceptions and these nerve connections and the brain processing that happens. Um, with a nod, of course, to John and everything that you do, who have a greater awareness of those things. But one might be said to literally be swimming in a sea of brain sensation. Our experience of the world comes to us filtered through that subjectively. You know, our what we see is not objectively what is out there. We see the reflection of light rays in our brain's habit of processing that in a certain way and allowing us to experience it in a certain way. Who knows if we're experiencing the totality of anything visually that's out there. Animals see into spectrums that we don't. Maybe they see things that we don't. Similarly with sound, you know, it's auditory processing taste, smell, olfactory and gustatory processing. So if you really uh, start to think about this, it becomes quite freaky because we are swimming through something that seems to be nothing but our own brain having fun. We don't know what's out there because all we experience is what our brain tells us we're experiencing. And that even more frighteningly can be manipulated and changed, induced hallucinations, <laughs> you know, and imagine if you can coordinate all that multi-sensorily and you can even coordinate the body's sense of balance and movement in space, suddenly someone can believe they're experiencing a whole other reality while they're doing nothing but sitting in the room with you watching them. And then you think, well, if that's what's going on, how do we know something like that isn't already happening? And then you have the plot of the matrix. So constructionism comes in this way. We make meaning of all of that sensation and we organize it and create a story about it for ourselves. And we construct our experience of being in the world, moving through our lives we make hypotheses about the way the world works and then whatever's out there gives us some feedback about that and we create more expansive ways of doing so and then we link up with each other and we start co-constructing notions things like what is truth and what does freedom mean and what does it mean to have laws and society but are there any golden tablets buried somewhere saying this is the way it is the postmodern view is no, it's a human thing to make meaning of those things, to construct it. So what we call objective truth is an illusion and everything is kind of subjective in that regard. So I think existential psychology embraces that as does a lot of psychotherapy because if the tragic narrative of a trauma is powerful, so is the survivor narrative. And 
what we embrace in terms of our story is our choice. And that's where that existential choice thing kind of comes in. The problem, Kathy, that you alluded to with a radical embrace of postmodernism is, of course, do all ideas have equal merit, if that's the case? Is everything equally true? You know, and that's where we get into trouble because then you get into absurdity. If no one has any superiority over anybody else, over validity of ideas or thoughts, then that makes for a difficulty with living and relating to each other. So most of us end up in this moderate constructivist postmodern kind of position <laughs> with regard to it, that we bring in more and more fragments of experience. We organize and construct it into something larger and larger and larger in our lives. And that is our experience of, you know, moving out of fragmentation into wholeness, which is my introduction to humanistic psychology. So I'll pause there. <laughs> okay. I had, again, my brain just goes like crazy when I'm listening to you and I have so many thoughts. At one point you were talking about just sitting in a room and developing this alternate reality around you. And I thought, well, wouldn't, that, wouldn't we diagnose this as psychosis? And what role does diagnosis have in the existential model of yeah. psychology? We're suspicious of it, particularly <laughs> the DSM-5. We're not fond of the DSMs really in any of their manifestations. Me too. <laughs> They're not well-researched. Um, I believe the National Institute of Mental Health is very skeptical about funding studies based on the DSM-5 because of that. It is geared largely for the convenience of clinicians and um, pharmaceutical companies. It's been moving more and more with each iteration to being able to medicate older and older people and younger and younger people. And, you know, the profit motive there is very suspicious. So existential psychology thus embraces, many of us embrace a phenomenological perspective that really is suspicious of this reductionistic aspect of diagnosing people to a problem or an illness and saying that that's all that they're about. We respect the uniqueness and the complexity of the person and we let ourselves be surprised by the unfolding illumination of that person before us. And we don't conclude that one person with narcissistic personality disorder or borderline personality disorder is exactly the same as someone else who might meet criteria for that diagnosis. We bracket those things so that they don't interfere with our ongoing here and now experience and connection and relationality with those individuals. Oh, great. Yeah. Uh, with the existential psychotherapy, what then is the mechanism or cause of pain and suffering? And what does existential psychotherapy do to address that? So the existential perspective is that we suffer because we're aware that our time is limited. And we suffer because there's anxiety about whether or not we're doing what we quote ought to be doing with our lives or whether we're doing something that will be worthwhile and meaningful. So there's all of this anxiety that kind of comes into play. And in therapy, we don't 
necessarily reassure clients that that's not the case because we don't pull the wool over their eyes. We help them face the storms of life and suffering and the adversity with courage and determination. We're suspicious generally of things like the New Age movement. Rollo May again said that he doesn't like the New Age, didn't like the New Age movement. He's deceased now. But um, he didn't like the New Age movement because he didn't like how it soft pedals human suffering and offers like illusory shortcuts or bypasses around it. Now, of course, we have this term called spiritual bypassing, which is the idea that we resort to spirituality and these lovely sounding empty concepts that minimize the role of suffering and promise us some sort of transcendence or escape from it when our value and our role here is to have the human experience in all of its totality and suffering is attendant upon all of that. So in therapy, we help them muster up the courage and know that they are equal to facing those things and that there is meaning to be discovered in doing so. And is it easy? Of course not. You know, no one ever promised that it would be. So Drake, you, you mentioned spiritual bypassing. Yes. And um, so when we think of, well, what the heck is a self? Um, yeah. Sometimes it seems as if there's an internal dialogue and there's contrary desires and messages. And yes. I guess sometimes we try to get some of those unpleasant uh, images and uh, thought streams to go away. Yes. And, or to, to get them to not bother us as much. Yes. That, that energy comes back. Uh, and since we yeah. didn't tend to it, it doesn't tend to the rest of us. And it doesn't care about us anymore. I love that. Um, I love how you said that. Yeah, you know, I mean, how many times if we're in the car, maybe listening to a radio, and then there's a sad song that comes on that reminds us of an unpleasant episode in our life. And like, oh, I was feeling happy, you know, eh, I better change the channel. Well, we sort of gloss over those things, or I better get on Facebook, you know, and start, you know, kind of commenting on people's posts and things like that, or, you know, and, <laughs> you know, engage in doom scrolling in a different way or whatever. But they're all things that take us away from our own body's experience of those feelings and those emotions that are very human. What's wrong with letting ourselves be sad for a moment? and to allow those memories in for a moment and reflect on who we are now as opposed to who we were at the time you know whatever is coming up in connection with that song we sort of rush past or gloss over or escape into those distractions and we fail to have the connection in the here and now with the full human experience so drake where is the wisdom in sadness and grief yeah well, I think, you know, once we understand, as Alan Watts says, that in, that security is an illusion, it doesn't exist, there's no such thing, death can come for us all at any time, you know, financial disasters can happen at any time, 
there's a sadness and a disillusion about that. But as Joseph Campbell was fond of saying, we have to let go of the life that we're trying to live in order to live the life that's waiting for us. So this is where this concept of authenticity comes in. And yes, it's terrifying to be authentic, you know, and to go against the grain of what people who love us and have good intentions for us expect us to do and to be. Another shocking thing that Campbell got a lot of guff for was saying that, um, you know, we ought not to listen to our parents so much because our parents really don't want our happiness if we're honest. What they want is our safety and security, which as we already said, doesn't exist. You know, many times, you know, according to Campbell, our parents say they want us to be happy, but they're really concerned about us and our well-being and our safety. So we have to make the courage, according to that perspective, to do something different. All this, of course, is understanding that in other collectivist cultures, there's some pushback against that because there's a sense of honor and relationality and honoring those family traditions and being devoted to carrying on the legacy of those things and meaning to be had that way. So that's a whole other discussion. Thank you for listening to the Spirit Like Wellness podcast. Spirit Like Wellness is a 501c3 dedicated to health and wellness education. Learn more at spiritlikewellness.org.